Real life. Superpowers. I've been a disruptor all my life, and I enjoy disrupting very much. But it maybe took me too long to realize that most people in the world don't like to be disrupted. So if you can create transformation, not by disruption, if you can do transformation by enhancing or augmenting an existing process, this is the most non-threatening, and you're actually performing transformation by one process at a time. And I love it because we can quantify it. Welcome to another episode of the Real Life Superpowers podcast. Today we have a guest who is a true pioneer in the world of AI and intelligence platforms. He's currently the CEO of IOLA, a company that's on a mission to connect the promise of AI to the masses. With his extensive experience in commercial strategy and execution, our guest has driven over 1 billion in impact for some of the world's leading Fortune 500 companies across more than 20 industries. He's held key positions at cybersecurity and digital marketing companies that have been involved in several notable acquisitions by giants such as Microsoft and Facebook. So without further ado, please join us in welcoming Amir to the show. Real Life Superpowers Amir, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're a person who's always following his curiosity and taking risks on himself. Is that true? Uh, that's one way to describe it. But uh, absolutely, I follow my gut. I follow my internal GPS. You know, uh, it's funny because uh, you have a fingerprint. I have a fingerprint. Nobody got yours or mine. But we constantly insist on being another face in a crowd. And there's not one uh, formula or a single way to do things. And I believe that each one of us has to be accountable to his own KPIs, if you will. So yes, uh, curiosity is a big, big part of it. And failure is an even bigger part of it. What was your first failure? Ah, <laughs> I can take you way back. Uh, I think first failure, honestly, is really to, uh, to understand uh, that, you know, the, the, it's funny as it sounds, I didn't recognize some elements that I was doing better than most, like to understand what I'm really good at, because nobody really told me you're good at. And until one day I look in, a, you know, in the mirror and say, oh, I'm pretty good in that. And I started to believe in myself. And once I started to believe in myself and start to stand tall, things start to work out. And the only thing which I regret in that regard that I failed to look in the mirror earlier and recognize and get that confidence. And that confidence that really led to the point that it's okay to fail. Okay, so I'll take the failure back to, to failure. And uh, my first failure is really one, to recognize who I am, what I'm good at, what I'm not. And second, that it took me too long to, you cannot eliminate fear, but to reduce the fear of failure. But some people don't look in the mirror that way for their entire lives. Like it's, it's actually fantastic that you, that there was such point in time. What triggered it? You know, it's funny because, uh, uh, I just completed, uh, I had a session this afternoon with a group of investors from Canada and I was following a great, a great speaker before me that talks about the Israeli ecosystem, about 8200, about the technological units. And uh, I was not smart enough to be part of those technological units. So I ended up in uh, Special Forces. And uh, uh, what I did over there led me to combat in early stage. And I think, again, uh, combat is the ultimate test. Uh, and it's life or death, literally. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, I was wounded in combat. And that specific incident really changed the trajectory of my entire life. So if I need to put my finger and say, okay, when things change, uh, that was that uh, uh, clear realism how fragile life is. We're all here on a borrowed time. And while I'm here, I need to make the most out of it and do it in my own way. And for many years, it really was very difficult for me to put it in words. I'm a very logical person. I need to explain to myself. I need to make sense of things. 
And for the longest time, again, I was uh, wounded. I recovered physically. I'm still full of metal. But uh, mentally, like we discussed it uh, in a preparation for this conversation, I kind of packaged it and threw it back, but it was unsolved. Uh, I don't watch TV much. I listen to TV. And I was sitting in my hotel room in 2008. The TV is in the background. And it was the Democratic Convention in Boston, when Boston, Massachusetts, when Barack Obama received the nomination of the Democratic, the Democratic Party. And when Obama started speaking, I never heard him talk before, like, oh, my God, this is so impressive, poetry in motion. I could not, I will glue to the TV. A week later, Republican Convention in St. Paul, Minnesota, the late John McCain is getting the nomination for the Republican Party. Now, I have the utmost respect to McCain, the persona, what he went through, a very brave, smart guy, but a great speaker he was not. So I was listening to his acceptance speech, and it was really difficult to listen, and I almost flipped the channel. And you know his background as a POW that went to a lot of pain, et cetera, et cetera. But then he said five words. And those five words hit me like a lightning. Even now I'm getting goosebumps. He said, I was blessed by misfortune. And all of a sudden, those five simple words made so much sense and solved the puzzle for me. And I realized, like, you know what? It was really hard what I went through. It was really difficult. I would not wish my worst enemy to go through it. But I'm so glad I did. And I came relatively okay on the other side because I got the greatest gift in life. It's called perspective. And once you have a healthy perspective, all of a sudden you realize, hey, we're here in borrow time. Make the most out of it. Do things your own way. Don't be afraid of failure. Every step I'm taking is another step, another building block in my path. And that's exactly, that was the moment that changed the trajectory of everything I did ever since. At a personal level, like, I would say, like, you don't remember the days that you watched Seinfeld on the sofa, right? You remember the days where, you know, it rained and you had a flat tire and something happened, you know, for, for better or for worse. So the evolution comes from incomfort. I have to force myself to be uncomfortable to evolve. And, and I actually have a fear of being too comfortable, right? Um, like I see that there's a lot of people that need that trick to how your, your perspective, but keeping that perspective as also a motivation for transformation and evolution, right? Especially like entrepreneurs. How do they get to the uncomfortable zone? You have something to lose, you become comfortable. Absolutely. So, so again, one of the things is that sense of urgency because you know the fragility of life and everything can be over in a snap. So the thing there is like to accomplish, you know, I've done several things in my career. The more I did, the hungrier I got. Okay. The more I learned, the more thirsty I became for knowledge. How? No, because it's like I'm constantly understanding, you know, I, I'm making plenty of mistakes like we all do. And I promise you, I'm going to make plenty of mistakes moving forward. But very rarely, I repeat the mistake I already did. So that's part of the learning curve. Uh, that, you know, making those mistakes, learning from your mistakes, moving forward. I have a great example, by the way. One of the companies that uh, I was involved with, uh, U.S. company, Silicon Valley, enterprise software. I took them uh, when the, there were 16 enterprise clients. I left them eight years later with 16,000 enterprise clients. And I've done most of it. Uh, we kept the 16 number, as you can tell, pretty, pretty precise. You know, just one letter, join, you know, added, K. Uh, so it's actually you added just one letter. <laughs> that's it. It's the K for many, you can, whatever you want to put the K for. But yes, that was one letter difference. But I did it specifically, and we can uh, dive into it later if you like, uh, two channel partnership. Two, I needed reach, I needed distribution. I went, and I built a partnership which became almost scientific through the telcos in the U.S., and I took it and I built it and it was a machine and I got too comfortable, okay? And what we have done is in that case, um, we sold a software on top of the package that the sell to B2B sales. So if an average revenue per unit ARPU was, let's say $45, whatever they paid us was another $25 on top, that, you know, it's win-win because all the telcos cares about is ARPU and churn. So if I could create stickiness and increase the revenue, everybody's happy. AT&T became my number one uh, partner. And I knew, like, if I'm going to hire a salesperson in upstate New York, I knew exactly how many units is going to sell after 90 days, after 180 days, after a year. And if he failed to reach the numbers, the problem was not the model. I just hired the wrong person. 
So scientifically, like, and it's going like a machine. And I was very comfortable, too comfortable. And then all of a sudden, the first iPhone came out. And I don't know if you guys recall, when the first iPhone came out, AT&T had exclusivity among the U.S. carriers. And overnight, the AT&T ARPU jumped from 45 to 95 without selling me. So my sales went from, you know, 55% of my market at the time was AT&T as a channel. It went to zero overnight because that's an easier way to get it. And I had to reinvent myself. And I was, you know, and I love that because immediately I remember sitting that night and say, okay, I need to create something new. And I was thinking about, okay, I'm bringing value to whom? I'm bringing value to workers in the field because we were selling uh, workforce management application on the phone. And I say, okay, what's the number one expense for any organization? Payroll. Who's the number one player in the world in payroll in the US was ADP. So I need to take it right now to ADP. And I went to ADP, that about 55% market share. And I told them, uh, I showed them my BlackBerry at the time. I said, you know what it is, at BlackBerry? I said, no, it's a temper-proof time clock. Because every time I start to shift, every time I start a job, I press the button, timestamp, location stamp, and then I'll take it, connect my server to your easy labor management server. And all of a sudden, and I thought I'm really smart. I said, oh, that's great. Take a number. I'm partner number 325. And I have to start from the very bottom. And at the time, I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. And I used to spend the weekends in the U.S. And uh, Sprint, who was my partner, among others, was the sponsor of NASCAR. NASCAR, if you don't know it, is the number two sport in the United States. I'm not sure it's a sport. I always tell them, you know, call me when you make a right turn because they're going in, in circles all the time. And I uh, ended up going to trying to find out who is the person who's responsible for ADP decision-making. And I found this is a guy that uh, is the head of the business unit. He's their chief rabbi officer. And uh, I realized, I started to do some research that this guy loves NASCAR. So I got Sprint. I called Sprint and I said, hey, guys, I need four VIP package for the All-Star Weekend coming up in Charlotte in three weeks. Thank God they were great guys that got me the packages. I sent a guy to John Lamancuso from ADP. I said, John, you don't know me. I'm one of your partners. I heard that you're a big NASCAR fan. I got two VIP packages for you in two and a half weeks' time. But by the way, there's a hot demand for those tickets. So unless I get your confirmation in the next 60 minutes, I have to give it to somebody else. Within 10 minutes, I have his social security number. Uh, and looking forward to spend the weekend with you. And uh, we spent the weekend together at Charlotte, boring as hell. How do you know he likes the NASCAR? Like, uh, by the way, how do you like intelligence? 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 So it's always about intelligence. You remember you did from a meeting or did like word to mouth? No, so, so I started to sniff around because each one of us has weaknesses. Each one of us is the things you like or don't like. A sport team that you follow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, a singer, whatever. So, and business is always done between people. It's never between organizations. And once you find a connecting component between you and the person, that's always a great bridge. You know, I have, a, I have one of my investors is an Aston Villa fan in the UK. So every time before I call him, I'm checking who they played last weekend, who they're going to play next weekend, who's injured, who's been high. It's a great connecting element. So I did some research. I got to some people at ADP that pointed, this is the guy you need to talk to. And uh, by the way, I asked him, does he have a football team he likes? And I said, no, he's crazy about NASCAR. Bingo. And But, you know, it's not enough if you follow soccer or football. You know, like the Spanish team, they're great, but they're playing, they're playing east-west. They're not playing north-south. The, the time of possession. But in football, you score balls in a net. It's not about passing or, or ball possession. And uh, great weekend. We're enjoying each other. Amazing. And that NASCAR race is 500 laps. Boring as hell. And there's a lap count. And you see 200 gone, 300 gone, 400 gone. Like that weekend is almost gone and I haven't scored a goal. So before it's too late, I went to the president of Spring that was with us in the suite, and I went to John and I said, hey, Padgett, John, come with me to the conference room. And again, I'm a big, strong guy, and I think I was kind of very convincing, so they just follow my guidance. And I went over there and I say, hey, uh, Padgett, Spring, what's the average lifetime of a Spring client? And he said two to three years was more than a two, two than a three, but never mind. I put three bottom left. 
John ADP, what's the, what's the average lifetime of ADP customer? And I said 12 years. By the way, the average lifetime of a U.S. company is 13 years, which means ADP is a Catholic marriage. Once you're in, there's no way out because you're connected to the payroll. So I put 12 here, 2 here. And then I said Paget, Sprint, uh, Construction, uh, Transportation, Home Healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Where those verticals rank for Springs? Oh, those are top verticals. So, okay, top verticals and top left. Paget, uh, John's ADP is a non-vertical because we have no way to provide a solution for people in the field. And a company that I was working at the time called Zora, X-O-R-A, that stands for X-Oracle, by the way. That's what it stands for. And I say, top left, 12, bottom right, three, top right, top verticals, non-verticals, and I created the X. Strength, weakness, weakness, strength. And I say, from now on, when a Sprint person step into enterprise account, instead of asking me, show me your AT&T or Verizon account and I'll save you five cents, I say, who's your payroll provider? By definition, 55% will say ADP. And they say, do you have mobile employees? I say, yes. Do you use ADP for your mobile employees? I say, absolutely not, because we cannot use it. If you use Sprint, you can. And what I've done is I took the 8,000 salesperson of Sprint and the 4,000 salespeople of ADP, both of it. So, but that was just one example. When I got too comfortable, I've been slapped in the face, and I was forced to be creative and find a way to overcome it. But what you could you have done differently if you hadn't gotten too comfortable in the first place? The first place is to realize before it happens is predict versus react. Yeah, so understand that if they're going to get exclusivity, I'm going to be the first thing to be pushed. So don't wait until this 55% of my revenue is going to be gone overnight. It was not a surprise. It was written all over. I failed to connect the dots. We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa. If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out kalkalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com, to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. Yeah, but you're a smart guy, okay? Like to say, you know, humbly, you're very smart. You surely already had like a few fallback ideas, okay? That you didn't like think them through that much, but they didn't totally blindside you. But the was it procrastination a little bit or you trust yourself that you would have a great idea? You know, I, I got mostly I got too comfortable because sometimes, you know, a great leader has to have a great team around him. And I believe, again, if you have a great team behind you, you don't need to deal with the mechanics. The mechanics will be covered by great operational uh, team members. And I stopped thinking strategically once I just took the cookie cutter and went from Nextel to Spring, from Spring to AT&T, AT&T to Verizon. And I became slightly too lazy in that regard. That experience really sharpened my alert system, sharpened my radar system, if you will, and I knew I'm never going to be ambushed that way again. And and on that sense, like after after you did that X wild story, yeah, like it's always like there's there's a lot of bureaucracy and all these big large you know corporate company. See, and this is like you know this is the thing that you know no one talks about the sales cycle or implementing what you talked about in the company, especially if it's on a piece of paper in an X in a NASCAR you know agreement, and you go home afterwards. You have to explain what happened. Like, it, well, like, how do you how do you confront that that kind of challenge? Oh, it's it's a multi-dimensional challenge actually. Because sometimes people get confused. Let's assume that, you know, you guys are a great channel, and I just convince you to use me, and we sign a piece of paper. Some people are, are getting confused. They think they just you know they won the lottery. Uh, they don't understand. They got a ticket not to the game. They got a ticket to the parking lot. Okay, they can do the tailgate party now. They're not even entering the stadium yet. And from there, you need to find a way to get into the stadium. And from the stadium, you need to get on the pitch. So, you know, this is just the beginning of the journey. You know, I get to the point that I really went down. So every telco carrier sales team in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, okay? It's a 10-people team. And in every team like that, on average, you have two superstars. You have two or three, which are really bad. And uh, most of them in the middle are just, okay. Now, the one on the top, I realized they don't need me. 
They're hitting their quotas, they're doing whatever they want, they're very good, they don't need me. Forget about them. The one on the bottom, it's a waste to invest in them, they're gonna fall off the, off the wagon. I wanted to go after the one in the middle. So basically what I've done is, after getting some early success, I did some research, and I found out why am I successful, why am I selling this solution specifically for gardening and uh, groundkeeping? And I found out, you know, in the US, by the way, every subsegment has a SIC code, C code. So basically, I found out that uh, this SIC code of 35667 is the one I'm hitting it. And what I found over there is I, I did work for them initially. I found out who the other players in Corpus Christi, Texas, in that C code, I free chewed it, sorry for the, for the graphic description, okay? But I basically serve it to them, hey, take it from me and just convert. Success breeds success. And once people realize, and, and you know, especially in sales, especially in channels, you're always going to get and follow the path of less resistance. So make it easy, remove the obstacles, run ahead of them and clear the swimming lane for them. That's, that's so again, it's never easy. It's always, you have to be, uh, and again, this is long before you had some very advanced CRMs, but actually be smarter than the competition, work harder than the competition, understand what's working, focus on that, and replicate success. Did you grow up in a house that encouraged being courageous and taking risks? No. And yet you are that way. Yeah, but you know, it's... it's uh, I don't want to say I grew up in Sparta, okay, because I think it's an exaggeration. And, you know, um, I'm the oldest of, my parents had me when they were 20 and 21, okay? I was a, an experiment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're wonderful people and they're wonderful grandparents for, for my kids. And uh, But it was not that way. And uh, I, I actually, uh, it was, again, it was a time in a country where it's not... Uh, like I stopped going to school in the middle of high school. I just went to school in the morning. I never made it to school. And I was out there all day long playing basketball. And, uh, and it's funny because uh, I, my sister was a school principal, just asked me to come and speak to the school principals in that region to tell them how a kid that grew up in that neighborhood broke the glass ceiling. And one of my favorite stories is that my uh, parents came to... Uh, uh, you know, to parents-teacher uh, conference. And the English teacher told my parents, you know, in English, there are three groups of students. One, the naturals. The one that's really easy with languages, they get it really easy. Unfortunately, your son is not part of that group. Second, those are the hard workers, the committed, the dedicated. It's going to be really tough on them. They're going to work so hard with a terrible accent. They're going to master the language. Unfortunately, your son is not part of that group either. And then there's a third group, doesn't matter how hard they're going to try, they're never going to speak English. You know, hair is going to grow in my palm before they're going to speak English. That was the quote. So your kid is a great kid. I heard he's a great basketball player. He doesn't need to come to English classes. He can play basketball. It's absolutely okay. Uh, fast forward, uh, ended up working for, for a NASA contractor in Washington, D.C., working some space programs. Uh, really cool stuff. That was a very quick fast forward. <laughs> and, and I'm traveling from Israel back to the US. And because of, you know, I still have a lot of metal on my body. I, every few hours I walk around and it was a big 747. So I could walk around and all of a sudden I saw some familiar faces sitting in the back. And I did the down the circle. I say, uh, Mr. Yoram Karen. I say, yes. Misa Adoni, who, who are you? I say, I'm the student that never, ever will speak English, and you're going to have air growing in your palm before you're going to speak English. And I ended up my business card with a NASA logo and everything like that. And for me, it was a closure. But going back to your question, no, it was not something that I uh, I was raised of taking chances or understanding failure or appreciate it. That's something that came up later. And, uh, you know, it's part of it is in Israel, as you know, we all have to serve in the military. And when you serve in the military, let's say I want to go to some elite uh, special forces unit. Uh, very few are going to make it. The majority who are not going to make it are going to go wherever the army wants to send you. Now, I was what's called Sputaim and I was playing for the national uh, team, for the junior national basketball team. I realized something, I didn't know it's called this way, that I have a golden parachute. 
which means I can try. I'm probably not going to make it. And if I'm not going to make it, oh, I'm a sporting midstay and I can play for the national team, go play basketball. So I tried and I made it. So I never went back to play basketball, but that was the point that I, for the first time, I went in a different path that was paid for me. And I said, no, 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 no. If I'm going to be in the military, I want to do something meaningful. I'm not sure I'm good enough to be part of those units, but I'm going to do my very best to try. I'm not going to make it. I'll play basketball. And I did it. And that's really what forced me to be on top of my game. Uh, really took me to uh, challenges that I never experienced before. And then going back to that event in Lebanon and the injury that really completely changed the, tra- the trajectory of my life. How lucky are you that you had the basketball? Because, you know, you were already good at something. You know, how, how would you think it would turn differently if you didn't have that kind of, you know, that one thing that you can always go back to? Um, it's just something that I also like think about also in the sense of a lot of people like uh, didn't get feedback. Like I, I believe it, like you never got good feedback. I, I was like that as well. And, and then you had to do something to, you know, be secure enough just to have that confidence. Like, do you feel that way on the basketball sense? Yeah, it, it's a great question, by the way. Uh, it's a wonderful question. Nobody asked me that question before, by the way. And I think it's a wonderful way to look at it because I was very fortunate to have it. And just to give you a sense, by the way, uh, when you are in 16, 17 in the country, in the way it was structured then, they break it down to regional uh, teams that eventually will build the national team. And I was looking around me and I say, I think I'm the third or fourth best player in my own club. Okay. So I think my goal is to make it to the regional. If I'll make it to the regional, I'm, I got a stamp of approval that as good as I think I am. If I fail to get that, that's going to be a failure. And the day that I was invited to the regional, I was very happy because I got a stamp of approval. Then uh, from the regionals, you're supposed to move up to the national. And I had no aspirations. I didn't think I belonged. There were great players in my uh, my class. And one day I'm getting setting up the national team and I'm getting an invitation. And I'm checking quietly, discreetly with other players in my team who are playing for the regional team. None of them got it. And I'm coming for the first uh, weekend in Vingate for the national team. And I have absolutely that syndrome that the person that doesn't belong, you know, it must be like, I hope they're going to tell me I'm not belong before bus service stops. I'll be able to get back home. I didn't even unpack my bags because I, I was absolutely certain that that was a mistake. And once I realized like, whoa, I belong. And it's not what I'm thinking. It's that's what the coaches are thinking. That was like the first time that I got that sense of confidence. Okay, I'm good at something. I'm being recognized as such. And that's something that is my fallback. Okay, I can always play basketball. I enjoy it. People recognize me. And by the way, once I made that switch in my head, I started to play way better. Of course. And Amir, what happened in that fast forward between basically being told, you're not going to truly succeed because I think English is uh, sort of um, reflective of uh, projection in general to NASA. It's amazing because, uh, uh, and it's all connected to that event in Lebanon uh, when I was trying to play James Bond and cut the blue wire and red wire. And I felt there's technology that, you know, you don't need to do it anymore. So when I came out of the military, I joined a group of people and we created, we didn't know it's called a startup at the time, a company that built remote control mobile robots for bomb disposal. And uh, that was my baby. And uh, I started to travel the world with that. And as I heard about me, and I was invited to the Cape and we created a joint venture with a company in Atlanta, Georgia, 21st Century Robotics. And before you know it, I'm working on a shuttle program. Uh, and then I'm going to Huntsville, Alabama to the Missile Command Center of the US Army, and I'm working in nuclear facilities. And we ran out of money, and we close it, and I'm getting a phone call from an aerospace company in the US, and they say, hey, we saw you in a conference two weeks ago in Philadelphia. Uh, we're super interested in you. And uh, three weeks later, I was in Washington DC building a robotic project for an aerospace company and started to build that confidence. And uh, that led me, by the way, to multiple uh, defense-oriented uh, opportunities until I realized I don't enjoy defense, okay? Because of everything that involved in defense, I said, I want to move into, you know, to, to the clean startup 
high-tech industry. And once I did it, very quickly, I became a, a, a team up with a company that was right on the borderline. I got a great opportunity uh, to become their COO. They sent me over to relocate. They relocated me again to the U.S. to run their worldwide business. It was a publicly traded company in NASDAQ. Uh, but I was too comfortable. It was way too comfortable. I got this real nice relocation, perfect relocation, etc. My kids went to Montessori school, etc., and uh, the company paid for everything, but it was way too comfortable for me. And I had an idea. And uh, one night, I'm surfing, and I'm bumping into a company in Silicon Valley that doing everything I thought about, but way deeper, way smarter. And I reached out to those guys. And a week later, I was in Silicon Valley. I met with the guys. Ten minutes into the session, they said, Amir, you have to join us. And I gave up the very comfortable life of corporate CEO to a startup in Silicon Valley when the Silicon Valley was Chapter 11 Avenue, uh, right after the dot-com era. And uh, that's when I built that uh, 16 to 16,000. But in the meantime, my kids started to grow up and started to graduate from high school. And uh, yes, we are American citizens, but we Israelis first. So my kids started to come back to return to Israel one by one on their own. Uh, and uh, when my son decided to follow my footsteps and to go to Special Forces, the rest of the family moved back to Israel, and I was commuting from Kfar Vadim Bagalil, from the northern Israel, from the mountains, to San Francisco. Uh, but then uh, I wanted to get connected to the Israeli ecosystem because I was not part of it. And at the time, Zohar Levkovich, who now you can see him at the Shark Tank, uh, was uh, the CEO and co-founder of Amobi. Uh, we met, uh, we connected, and after 30 minutes, Samir, we need you at Amobi. And I joined Amobi as the global head of sales. We repackaged Amobi and within a year, uh, we sold Amobi to uh, Singtel for $324 million, which at the time was a big deal. It was back in 2012. And while in retention, uh, I was asked to help another Sequoia-backed company. So I helped Onavo that eventually was sold to uh, Facebook. And then I got one third for good behavior on my retention. And the day I completed my uh, term as a retention at Singtel, I joined Onavo. Uh, I'm sorry, I joined Adalom as a CEO. And uh, within less than a year, uh, Adalom we sold it to Microsoft for 321 million dollars. So I had back to back to back uh, amazing stories back with uh, Israeli companies while I'm still commuting from California to Kfarvardim. That's definitely not comfortable. No, it's not comfortable, but. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's something that uh, always followed my path. I didn't realize how crazy and how difficult it was until I stopped doing that. So while you do it, I'm so committed. I'm so dedicated. I don't see left or right. I'm just doing it. I, I have so. to ask you, and please don't be modest in your answer, because I think the answer matters for people who maybe need to hone this skill. How much do you feel that the fact that you're very outspoken and eloquent and in a sense, a storyteller has to do with your success. You know, I start before the success, okay? I like, you know, I'm sure you guys are doing what you're doing, not because I'm sure you're successful, but I'm sure you're doing that because you're enjoying it first. Absolutely. I don't, no, totally suffering. <laughs> I can tell, by the way, but uh, at least I'm rising 50%. So, but in any case, you know, and it's important, I, I always talk about the P word. In that regard, P is passion. And, you know, you, you talk to me right now, you got a sense I'm fueled by passion. And, um, and for me, communication is key. And part of communication is storytelling. And storytelling connects between people. People really want, you know, uh, when I spoke to the group of investors earlier today, I could have told them, you know, about my super exciting startup, which I'm my startup right now, Iola which does incredible things. And I can talk just about the technology and get people super excited. But today is the eve of Memorial Day in Israel. Memorial Day in Israel is very different than, you know, the barbecuing of Memorial Day in the U.S. And uh, I had to put some context and pay tribute in my presentation to where I came from and the people which I'm going to visit tomorrow. So, and I followed, by the way, the speaker ahead of me was Gigi Levy. And Gigi is amazing. And those are, you know, it's a tall order to follow Gigi. Yep. 
And I've I've heard Gigi before, and Gigi was on his element. He was at his best. He was inspiring. He was smart. He was witty. Like I almost left and went home. Uh, and then when my turn came, I did my part, but I did it through my personal eyes, through my personal story, through my uh, the 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 moment, the day, the date, the, the context. And the greatest. Um, compliment I got at the end, you know, and one of the ladies over there said, Amir, you have like a big challenge after following Giddy, uh, following Gigi. And I say, I know, I try, I'll do my best. And she told me, you did great. You know why? Because you connected to the hearts. Authenticity. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, people don't follow, te- technologies are great, okay? And numbers are impressive, more or less. But at the end of the day, that, you said the right word, okay? You know, you have a human being another side that you can connect to the story it's not all roses it's not all sugar-coated okay life is complicated life is complex uh there are great lessons involved but that's the part no i'm going back to that point i think the greatest gift i have and i continue to work on it because it's coming to me natural is is that storytelling capability because you don't want to be another face in the crowd people want to remember that that guy that you know i showed him it's all started because Gigi talk about the ecosystem, talk about 8200, talks about 81, et cetera, et cetera. So while he was talking, I searched my phone. And uh, some time ago, I searched, I was helping my parents in their house. And I found a picture that I took when I was in the military. The word selfie was not known at the time, of course. But while parachuting, I took one of those pocket cameras and I pulled it off my, out of my vest and I took two quick selfies. And one of them came out great. And I still have it. Okay, and I, and now it's digitized, and I have myself like in 800 feet with a parachute, terrified face, uh, jumping out of an airplane. And I told him, you know, no special skills are required. Gravity still works. Once you find your way out of sight of the airplane, you're gonna find your way down. So first, it's me. Okay, that's me. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. And but they're gonna remember that crazy guy that jumped from 1,200 feet and took a selfie before a selfie was existed. Okay, and and that's something that. Uh, I, I'm not bad in technology, I'm not bad in building companies, but the one thing that I enjoy the most is people. And that personal connection, you know, the fact that many, I, I'll give you a fresh story. Um, I worked with two or three years ago with a Fortune 100 company. And uh, when I have 10 minutes eating sandwich, I'm not reading Twitter, I'm at LinkedIn, okay? I'm looking at posts that people put, and all of a sudden, I saw that guy now became a CFO of a Fortune 30 company. I haven't spoke to him in three years or two and a half years. I don't have his email address. I sent him a LinkedIn message, and I say, hey, Brian, great to see that you're now the CFO of this company. I'm working on something super cool I'd love to share with you. Seven minutes later, he sends me an email back, a LinkedIn message back, and say, hey, I'm here. so great to hear from you. Here's my email address. Tell me more about it. And I went to see that company three weeks ago, and we got a contract last Friday. But because he remembered me, he trusted me, he told me that you're always doing some cool stuff that I don't understand. And But at the end of the day, it's, it's really the way of living, but it's also very handy when it comes to business. I have a wild guess here. I'm, 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 a lot of the companies that you know were sold like, um, you know, I can, I can say this one after a year and this one after a year. Now, forget about the time period, but it sounds to me that you're like a really go-to guy um, to package and also work on the company culture to get it ready for that kind of leverage. I'll, I'll take it. First of all, you mentioned the right word and it's culture. I'll start with that with your permission, because at the, at the end of the day, um, that's really, really culture. You know, the British said the culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it's, and it's very true. And it's very true. So culture, again, it depends because some of the companies without going to specific names, you can connect the dots on your own. Uh, I was brought in uh, to build that enterprise machine because I took the eight years to build that machine from 16 to 16,000. But when I looked around, I realized that if I need to build that, I need really to shave everything and start from scratch. And it's going to be a long process. And I need you know the right partners, the right investors, the right patients, because it's going to be a process and it's going to be five years plan and very few startups have that five years plan mindset. Okay. And investors that will support it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's either I'm going to go for the long run and I did it before or I say, you know what? No, 
I understand what is the strengths, what the weaknesses, play to my strengths. And sometimes the strengths is not to build that enterprise. Package it. And I remember one of the CEOs that I, I was on his team, I sat with him and I was ready for do the, the annual uh, SKO, the sales kickoff. And the night before, I'm sitting in, in Silicon Valley and I, hit, I realized the problem is not with them, the problem is with me. Because if I want them to do this and this and this and this, I have to change everything. I have to adjust to them, not adjust them to me. And I remember the next day sitting with the CEO and I say, hey, uh, first, we have three checkpoints. One, we need to show that we can bring big logos. I don't care how much they're going to pay. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't care if they're going to pay at all. I just need those big logos. Second, I need to show reach. I need to have, for scale, I need reach and distribution. I need channel partners. So we need to sign several of them. Third, we need to demonstrate we're not just a Silicon Valley phenomena, that we're a global phenomena. And within several months, we had some very big logos, Netflix, Safeway, et cetera, as clients. Check. Three or four months later, I got some of the largest players as channel partners. Uh, and then in uh, uh, August of the same year, I was in Japan signing with SoftBank to be my distributor in Japan. And I told him back in January, you'll be check, 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 and you're going to get the check. And in September, we were sold. So, but, that, but that's really, it's not just, I, I'm not that closer that coming just to package and sell. I'm coming over and I'm adjusting and I'm setting up the game plan. Wherever I can build a company, long run, absolutely, that's my first preferences. Like on a strategy, it's amazing, right? But it's like a fallback decision. It has to come from like either the, the partners hate each other or, you know, you get bored with the business or you don't know how to scale anymore. I'm not saying this on a bad way. It's amazing to do like the things that he did, but. It's absolutely, it's absolutely accurate. And you know what? I'm taking even to present times. Uh, I'm deeply involved in AI for the last eight years. Uh, six years of the eight, we were the AI platform of choice of McKinsey, the management consulting company. Uh, and I was personally involved in more than 100 McKinsey engagements with Fortune 1000 companies. So I had this uh, courtside seat, if you will, to witness, you know, firsthand what's working, what's not working with enterprise uh, AI. And in my, and I love it, you know, because for many, many years, I was always dealing with the most advanced technologies in different areas. Uh, but if you look at enterprise AI, at least from my perspective, I believe the promise of AI for those organizations haven't failed, but it's still far from succeeding. It's a, I think it's a fair statement. And there are many reasons. And part of it was that very few and far in between are actually benefiting, mostly data scientists. There are not enough data scientists. And if you're lucky enough to have some, very quickly you're going to find out that they're far removed from the business. What have we done? Second, with all the respect to AI and ML, those are amazing tools, but just tools. Everything starts and ends with data. And the majority of data is still not part of the game because the majority of data is still unstructured and uncaptured. Mm -hmm. So when we took Iola, my current company, we say, hey, why don't we go in those two corners? Let's connect the AI of, to the masses. And we realize, you know what, if I cannot bring Muhammad to the mountain, let's bring the mountain to Muhammad. And I realize that Muhammad doesn't speak R or Python, but Muhammad speaks WhatsApp or Slack or Teams or instant messaging. So if I can connect through conventional communication tools to the depth and power of AI, and we did it. Like the, you moved it from B2B to B2C or B2B2C? B2B and B2B2C. Right. And the first thing came to my mind because, you know, I built some large sales organization. Every time you meet with a client, by definition, you're going to be exposed to a tremendous amount of critical human intelligence, client needs, competitors, pricing, client DNA, etc. Everybody agrees. Then ask yourself, how much of that is actually being captured? And you scratch your head and say, huh, very little. Second, CRM's been around since 1999, so it's 24 years. Uh, if I may say so, commercially, phenomenal success. Operationally, terrible, colossal failure. I haven't found a single person who said, oh my God, no, I'm so excited. I'm going to log into Salesforce. And I'm not picking on Salesforce because nobody likes doing it. You treat it as a chore. I would say, though, that HubSpot are doing a fantastic job in that respect and really made CRMs very accessible. Yeah, but still, and I think that did the, made some improvement, but all the CRMs in general, okay, you go through a, a massive effort IT-wise to install it, infrastructure-wise. And then you have a slow stream of 
dirty water coming through it. And I say, you know what? If I can use my natural language capabilities and natural language interface, and I just finished a meeting with, uh, with Noah, and I'm walking to the elevator, and I can speak in natural language and tell what I just learned. I don't want to record a conversation because I have issues with privacy to start with. Second, I believe whenever you record it, subconsciously you're going to p- apply a filter. And third, I'm more interested in the subtext than the text. I want to understand your take on it, etc. And if I can share that insight, as soon as the meeting is over, when everything is fresh on my mind, and I'll capture it, and, you know, my company's name, and then automatically integrate it to uh, your CRM of choice, my company name is Ayola, A-I-O-L-A, and the most important letter is not A-O-I, it's actually the O. And the O is not actually an O, it's, it's a loop, a fat loop of intelligence that ever learning, ever green, where I collect, integrate, process, deliver. And by the way, I'm answering now a question you asked earlier on today on the conversation. And by the way, as soon as we took it, we took it to Fortune 50, Fortune 100, Fortune 500. In several months, we had 2.5 million ARR. Amazing. Wow. 10, 11 months ago, we are running fast, running high. I'm traveling back from the US on United. Wi-Fi is not working. Oh my God, I have 11 hours to think. And I'm thinking about what just happened in the world because two months or three months prior, the war in Europe broke out and that war is terrible. And I realized that uh, that war is going to impact many different things. Second, 10 months ago, I was thinking about the financial crisis. I don't think it's a financial crisis. I think it's a new financial reality. COVID will come and go. Who knows what's going to happen in China and Taiwan? You know what? We're potentially facing one of the largest perfect storm in modern history, which is going to dictate to organization to have a clear separation between what perceived to be nice to have versus must have. Whatever is nice to have, forget about it. I don't have time for cosmetic surgery. I have to stay alive. So first I had this, you know, I'm reading the map and took me about three seconds to realize, holy cow, I'm very proud of the success I'm having, but there's a real risk that people will look at me as nice to have. So from that moment, I went back to my board and I said, listen, I I had a little bit of time and you're probably familiar with, uh, in psychology, with the Maslow pyramid of needs. So I created the Mayola. From Mayola's perspective, which are the verticals which are immune to all those world shenanigans? I said, it doesn't matter what happened in the world, we have to eat. Unfortunately, we have to take our prescription medications, supply chain, uh, semiconductor, etc. And I shifted the entire business at the peak of the success. And I said, I want to go after must-have verticals in critical processes. Some of them are highly regulated where I can quantify ROI and do it at scale. One of my investors told me later, I say, I thought you're crazy because to pivot is super natural and super legit. People do it when you hit the wall. But it's the first and only time when I saw a company doing so great, so quick, and I realized that the wind is shifting. I didn't wait until it's going to hit the fan. And I shifted the entire organization to a different place. Learning from past experience. Absolutely. But that's the reason, going back to your previous question about uh, you know, proactive versus reactive. I understand the wind is going to change. I'm not going to wait until I'm going to be ambushed, going to lose my business. I'm going to find a way to reinvent myself. And by the way, that happened 10 months ago. And since then, it's been crazy. Uh, we were able to take it to the food safety business and oil and gas and logistics. And everywhere it's tied in. And actually, we develop and we all of a sudden we realize that the natural language uh, connector that we created is based on conventional ASR, which is not good enough. And we build our own. And now we ended up with our own propriety with three patents, technology that's built to support 107 languages that can go from vertical to vertical, from process to process in hours. And it's serving. So it's cutting edge technology, the most advanced technology when it comes to natural language, but connected to the most traditional industries with everyday problem. And I love the fact that I had a closure with McKinsey a few weeks back. And I say, you know, I've been a disruptor all my life. And I enjoy disrupting very much. But it maybe took me too long to realize that most people in the world don't like to be disrupted. So if you can create transformation, not by disruption, if you can do transformation by enhancing or augmenting an existing process, this is the most non-threatening. And you're actually performing transformation by one process at a time. And I love it because we can quantify it. But I got to ask you, speaking of threatening and threats, um, there's a lot of commercial pressure on you, obviously. This is a company that is supposed to reach 
heights and goals with respect to success. And on the other end, there is a very strong debate these days about AI and uh, AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence. And I'm wondering how much is that something that's on your mind and do you feel like you have responsibility and, you know, considering that potentially the technology that's being developed right now is basically a new species that could bring to the end of mankind? It's a big question. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the key there, and I think starting even earlier, because I believe uh, AI is everything on steroids, okay? But it's also bias on steroids, okay? That's one part. So there was a big issue even before generative AI and chat GPT and et cetera, et cetera, about uh, ethical, unethical use of AI. Now, I believe, again, that the best tool available is still the human brain. But the human brain is limited uh, with, you know, there's so much we can see and so much we can process. Let's call it low dimensionality, which is a polite way to see how limited we are. And we can use AI as an auxiliary power to connect the dots beyond what the human eye can see or what the human brain can process. And that's the reason I'm, I'm really concerned about unleashing that species, as you call it, because the question there is how much we can control it. So therefore, as long as you bring it in a controlled way to complement the human brain in a places where we know exactly what role AI is playing, I believe this is the best way to control the positive impact and to eliminate the negative potential impact that AI can generate. At the end of the day, it's all about responsibility. It's all about ethics. It's all about the same fundamental we do with every other aspect of our life. Same applies here. But rather than dealing with uh, rocks and, you know, with uh, uh, piston or knives, we're dealing here with atomic weapons. Although, although we just have to inspire people, like you said, just to be not in their comfort zone because the, 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 the problem will be like AI is just getting, you know, getting really comfortable with all the great solutions that are really quick. At the end of the day, there's two jobs, in my opinion. Everything, you know, will, there's going to be a lot of unemployment. And a lot of stupid content, but there's two things that, you know, I, th I think you can rely on. And there's like future people, it's creative thought, you know, people who are, who have to disrupt, disruptors and creative thinking. Okay. And the other one, it would be relationship people. Okay. So the, the atomic bomb will just be the unconnectivity. But if you, those are the two things that, you know, it, as comfortable as possible, there's always going to be in a mirror, you know, just trying to, you know, to change that comfort zone. And that's like, you know, a good diffuse of that. And, and absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, you, you asked me in the very beginning, why did I went to that person in ADP and talked about uh, NASCAR? It was all about intelligence. At that time, I had to do intelligence the old-fashioned way. I had to make phone calls, etc. You know, I had to, uh, the other day, get some information super quick. And, you know, generative AI and chat GPT now, it's an amazing tool to allow me to do what I do best better and quicker. So as long as we remember what's serving what and not overlooking the same fundamentals, connectivity, the people interactions, at the end of the day, what makes us feel good. You know, when you go out with friends and drink beer, you're enjoying it. If you're gonna sit with your computer, you're going, most people enjoy it less. So the key there is like, at the end of the day, now let's not forget what are really the key principles in your life Use this incredible technologies to empower, to improve, to make it faster, make it easier, but stick to, stick to the basics, stick to the fundamentals. And at the end of the day, I believe it's, it's, a very, it's very fascinating, right? And I think, by the way, ChatGPT and uh, generative AI is going to bring a lot of ethical issues. Uh, like always, the people who are going to make the, most of the money is going to be the lawyers. And content, and really stupid content. Yeah, but the key there is like, it, it, guys, it, we are very lucky to be around at this time and, and experience it because it's 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 a game-changing technologies. Uh, you, you know, there were a few events like that in the last 50 years, and we're now arguably facing the most exciting one, but we still need to stick to our basics. We need to still to, to be uh, accountable and need to be responsible. Amir, what's your superpower? I can sleep on command. 
<laughs> With the amount of things you're doing, I believe you. No, this is great because I don't have jet lag and I travel. I'm I'm in the US every other week. And my ability to say, hey, it's 7 a.m., go to work, or it's 7 p.m., have dinner and go to bed, and and I can shift. So, yeah, uh, again, uh, kidding aside, super, that's a great superpower to have, you know, as a dad uh, in the business, et cetera, et cetera. But I believe is uh, my personal relationship, my, my communication skills, uh, my curiosity, going back to your first question. Approachability. Approachability. It's a, it's a nice word. I like it a lot. And, you know, this is something which um, I enjoy. You know, I spent some of my life in a kibbutz. And in a kibbutz, if you are smart or stupid, that's no problem whatsoever. If you're good-looking or ugly, no problem. But if somebody will say that you're either selfish or lazy, you're doomed. Now, fast forward. I'm involved in my first exit. I'm in Singapore, and I'm excited. And I told you a minute ago about my superpowers of falling asleep, and I cannot fall asleep uh, on command. I'm too excited. I'm not a big drinker or whatever, but I say I'm going to go down to the hotel bar and, you know, I'm going to sit over there, have a drink, one of two. And I go over there and there is a nice uh, French business lady, Cecile from Alcatel Lucent. And we're talking. And now maybe two or three glasses of wine. And after an hour and a half, I say, I had enough. I have a big day tomorrow. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Have a good night. And she looked at me and said, may I share an observation with you before you go? I said, sure. And she said, I think you're a very selfish man. Now, now you know the context. You could not punch me any harder in my gut, okay? And I said, how can you say that? You know, we've been talking for 90 minutes. She said, no, no, you're missing the point. I said, okay, enlighten me. She said, you know, you share with me now in the last 90 minutes, great stories and lessons learned, etc. The fact that you don't share it enough with other people makes you selfish. And I ended up going back to my room. I cannot fall asleep again because I was thinking about what you just said. And ever since, by the way, uh, you talk about approachable, I'm always approachable, and that's something I'm not even worried about putting publicly like in a podcast. Uh, there's nothing that makes me happier than share with other people the mistakes I did and the problem I can help them to avoid. So for me, uh, yes, I enjoy doing what I'm doing, but yes, I'm enjoying very much being approachable, sharing my experience, sharing my learning. And for me, again, uh, the more I do and the more success I'm experiencing, the hungrier I am. And the more excited I am, and the more curious I am. So this is something that uh, I enjoy the process, and I love sharing it with other people. And your kryptonite, your weakness? <sighs> weakness, uh, plenty. Uh, I'm not very detail-oriented. So uh, the fact that sometimes I'm, uh, I see the big picture. But if I know, I remember when I went to... to I took the same class with my wife in the University of Maryland, some advanced math. And I had one of those teachers that every class started with a quiz on a previous class. And every class, when we went home, my wife said, we, the only class we took together, we said, never going to do it again. And she said, oh, I didn't understand anything. And I'm sitting there because I got it like that. And I explained to her, she's doing the quiz. I'm doing the quiz. She's getting A. I'm getting F. The next week, same story. The third week, the same story. Finally, the teacher called me and she said, Amir, I think this is too advanced for you. Uh, you know, you need to give up, uh, you know, uh, math 105, 107, whatever it was. Teachers love you. Yeah, you're going to have hands, uh, hairy hands too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I say, you know, there's, a, there's another Israeli student in the class. She had a different uh, family name. She said, Raya Lev. She said, oh, yeah, she's an amazing student. Yeah, you know, she's my wife. And let me tell you a secret. Every time when we go home and I told her the story, and she said, Really? So explain to me. And then she looked at my quiz and she saw, you know, like I'm making one plus one is equal three and pluses and minuses. Like the, the lack of attention to details, I'm semi-dyslectic. So the fact is I can see a big picture. I can know where I'm going, but the details sometimes I need, I need somebody running behind me that catches everything and making sure to put it in the right places. Uh, so I think that's, that's part of my weakness. I'm sure I have plenty by the way, but, uh, uh, that, that's a clear one. Amir, thank you so much for being so approachable and genuine and such a fantastic storyteller. And we truly, I'm speaking for both of us, uh, we wish you all the best and we appreciate this interview. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's it's fun to see like for like everybody's like, this is like, 
you don't see the person, but you know, it's great to see an inspiring uh, entrepreneur that's a human being being human. Uh, it's not trivial, and thanks for that. And I wish you the best of luck and uh, to speak again. Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real Life Superpowers Superpowers.